0: Independence of Mirror, Stancock, special edition, special edition, no commercial interruptions, we're just going to yak it. And we can't wait until, until Monday, because it's Sunday, and it's going to be Monday. And I always say, I haven't done this in a long time. I really wanted to do this with uh, James Corbett, corbettreport.com. Uh, and um, I wanted to do this because I knew Monday, or wait till his next regular scheduled appearance, which would be, you know, uh, a week from this coming Wednesday, would be too long. And I've been around long enough and remember the psyops of all the be feared and why and said what happened. Then you find out decades later what really happened, who did what and why. And you can see the same kind of operation being done on our brain cells now. So I'm going, no, I, I need to have this understood now because it's starting to unfold. We were always of the opinion it's going to be when the debt starts getting called in, when the petrodollar gets abandoned, when you the know, Federal Reserve System comes up against any competition – When uh, you have so many things that would be dominoes after the petrodollar fell, and it looks like it's underway. So I didn't want to wait any longer, at least understand how fragile it is when the people's opinion and certainly that of a lot of other economies just say, eh, not so much. Then what? Well, we might find out. And there's a lot of little signs going on. We'll talk a little bit of history. But the news as it's unfolding right now is something that we need to know. I've always said, and a lot of people didn't really understand what I meant when I said, it won't happen all at once, but it will happen overnight. And the point that I'm making is that, you know, it, it won't be all at once. It's not one thing. It's just like breaking dawn. You can see it coming. You know, here it comes. You know, it's like, you know, the sandstorm. Yep, here she comes. You know, it's calm now, but I, I see it coming. Well, now I'm think it's going to be, it will happen overnight. And it overnight, maybe a Monday, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> but it's going to be, you know, soon, you know, or soon. it's a day sooner than what we were worried about before. I, I It's just going to continue to get closer. So I think we need to understand what's happening. And I don't know anybody better to do that than James Corbett. Now, he wrote an article, what you need to know about the Saudi purge. and I've read it and I've read a bunch of other stuff. And we've had a lot of guys over the years come up, you know, letting us know building up to this or something like this. And I think this is here, but I want to, you know, uh, probably first off, we're going to try and do this in an hour as fast as we can without commercial interruption. So I got to ask James, where do you think we start? You know, is it historical? Do we go back, uh, you know, with oil? Do we go back with uh, Lawrence of Arabia, the first world war? Do we go back after, uh, you know, the uh, Bretton Woods? Do we go to... um, I, You know, the petrodollar with Kissinger in the early 70s, do we go to, I mean, how far back do we got to go?
1: You know, that's an excellent question and one that I think most people wouldn't be perceptive enough to ask because these kinds of questions really are the fundamental point of all of this. This isn't a single thing that's happening right now in the midst of things. It is something with history that goes back decades or centuries, depending how far back you want to go. So I think the real... The real way to approach this is to take a look at what's happening and then, you know, you follow those threads back as far as we can to where, they, to where they originally lead. And I think a lot of them do lead back at least a century to World War I, the carving out of the modern-day Middle East. I mean, that happened as a result of the First World War and the backroom deals that were going on in the drawing rooms in Paris and what have you. I mean, that's, that's where so much of this, what, what we now understand as the Middle East began— And also, I mean, yeah, you could go back to Lawrence of Arabia and all of that stuff. Um, And oil obviously plays a huge role in this and the machinations of the oligarchs. So I don't know. I mean, it's an excellent question. And it's an important point to keep in mind for all of this discussion, no matter what we end up talking about, is that there is so much history behind this. I
0: know. So I need to know, like, with, you know, damn, and and you're one of the guys I, you know, I've... uh... I've read a a lot of things that were before the Internet really got going. And that's if it wasn't for that or some of the patriot conspiracy, John Birch, whatever the heck, that later you find out they're mostly right about everything. So I'm going, this is um, you're in the new era. You're having such enormous amount of of resources available to you and you know where to look. And then you have a lot of the corbeteers, a lot of your supporters and followers and helpers. Out there scouring the, I mean, I, I, this is what we were looking at when Max Headroom came out, you know, in the eighties or something, which was a TV program. I mean, my, I'm at the age at fifty six, born in sixty one, graduate seventy nine in high school, and my thing was is that I can see in retrospect all of the repeats of the same kind of mind screws that they're doing now, and for the same reasons, and it seems like it, it was always. Our hegemonic, unilateral, we get to do whatever we want the way we want because we can. And oh, by the way, we got, you know, big guns and satellites and fighter planes and stuff. So it's been to me that that soon shall pass. I mean, it can't sustain the way it is and put everybody under that fear, that that that, that, that tension. And it benefits like everybody in the government and up, you know, other than the people and I'm I'm seeing the awareness from what the work that you're doing, the people are starting to be able to embrace what's happening and why it's a, it's a philosophy. It's a thing. It's an entity that's eating everywhere, but it starts somewhere. It's an idea. And that's where you got, you know, why they did, you know, uh, big oil, you know, conquered the world. And then, you know, and how, when you, those are fascinating documentaries, but it's, it has a beginning and there's something that I mean, we got to go biblical, you know, do we have to just go a philosophy is it what do we got to be afraid of before we define what it is that's going on now so we understand it in context?
1: Well, you're right. I mean, fundamentally as we've talked about before, this is about an ideology. It is about the ideology ideology of oligarchical collectivism, which is what uh, Eric Blair aka George Orwell called it in 1984. That was what, uh, what Stein writing it. about. <laughs> right? So, um but but yeah, it goes I mean I don't know how you're going to define this. Everyone's going to have their own perspective on it. I think fundamentally it is just a mindset that exists in some people and for whatever reasons. And we've talked about psychopathy and how that contributes to, to the, uh, the well, the overall oligarchy and their construction. Um, you could go biblical and religious if that's your thing. Um, I, I mean, that's above my pay grade. I don't... I'm not gonna solve all of those kinds of questions, but fundamentally this mindset exists and it exists because it is effective for the purposes of controlling vast amounts of people or it has been effective for controlling vast amounts of people. The question going forward is, can they continue to maintain that grip throughout this technological revolution that we're living through? And the real question on the other side of that is, I mean, once we go through this transhumanist whatever, buckle in, because it is coming. Uh, Once we go through that, will it be the democratization of this technology? So it's in everyone's hands and we all go forward into the future together. Or will it be a small controlling oligarchy ruling over everyone else with the power of that technology in their grasp? And that's the real question that will define the 21st century.
0: You know, I'm and that's how deep, you know, I think this really goes. Um, For They, them, those to rule us or to get us to comply or be willing slaves or, you know, THX 1138 with, you know, Robert Duvall, um, they have to change us. You know, it's chemical or it's uh, electrical, electronical, whatever role, you know, they're going to do to um, get us to be more submissive. You know, it's whatever is in the water, the air, the 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 food, the you know, whatever the plastics. I mean, it's you know, vaccines. I mean, you just go on and on and on. You know, there's dials that somebody's turning, and it's never to your benefit. You know, it's always you're just to be exploited in whatever way, regardless of how evil it is. They just find their niche and they do whatever. And the service that we're expecting from, I guess, I don't know, from anybody, I I just say free market, you know, whatever I'm willing to pay for it. But um, uh, this idea that herds us as a societal being is being plucked all the time to convince us to make somebody king, you know, or, or repackage it in whatever way and they get to rule us. And every time you scratch the surface, it's bad. It's really bad. And it's got really bad people behind it, forcing it into existence, willing it, you know, making you fund it, whatever it is. And there's something wrong with them. I mean, I've been around long enough to meet these people. A lot of them are just insulation. You know, they're, they're, there's the, the real powers back behind that. And it's even darker. You know, so I'm, um, I'm not trying to say it's a spiritual evil thing or something. But, you know, many people would. My thing is, is that I can't combat it until I understand it. And what you've done, James, is kind of understand these people just absolute power corrupt. And that's absolutely it's like a drug or something. I don't know if it tracks bad guys or makes them. But we're in a situation now to where I need to understand the importance of the House of Sod in what's happening. Because it seems to me that part of the deal they made with the, you know, whether devil, the angel or whatever was their perspective, it's coming unraveling. And I'm just wanting to know how that's going to manifest itself.
1: Was that a question? (laughs) Yeah, where do I dig into that?
0: I know, I'm trying to get you to monologue, man. Yeah, okay, all
1: right. Well, uh, uh, okay, so now we're swirling around the events in Saudi Arabia and the House of Saud. So for people who don't know, Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy, and it is a constructed... Uh, monarchy. It isn't some sort of art organic thing that came from the soil. This is a, a certain family that was selected to rule the country because they would play ball with the right, you know, global international elite players. And that's scene that's going back to the grandfather of the family, the uh, Ibn Saud, who founded the modern state. But, uh, more specifically, uh, I was a meeting with FDR on uh, Bitter Lake in 43 or whenever that was to cut the original deal for Saudi Arabia to be under the U.S. military umbrella and to have that relationship so that, of course, they would be the, uh, the steady supply of oil for the American empire. And that, that relationship moves forward into the 70s where you have the formation of OPEC. And um, specifically with uh, OPEC... Uh, taking their their position as this admitted open cartel, I mean, that's what it is, um, to manipulate oil prices. And in 1973, as a result of the Yom Kippur War, which, oh, by the way, was uh, largely engineered by Henry Kissinger, Um, That part often gets excluded from the history. But anyway, Kissinger definitely had a role in what was going on with the Yom Kippur War. But as a result, as retaliation for that, OPEC decides to raise oil prices. They raise oil prices by 400%, which is interesting because that is the exact amount that just a few months before the Yom Kippur War started, before all of this crisis that generated this need for a 400% rise started... The Bilderberg Group was meeting in Sweden that year, and they they were envisioning, what if there was some kind of crisis to the oil supply? And what if what if oil prices went up by, oh, I don't know, 400 <laughs> percent? That was literally what they were talking about a few months before all this kicked off. So um, that's exactly what happened and, of course, created the oil crisis, which I'm sure you'll remember from your youth, um, Ernie.
0: Yeah, this was, you know, this is the one thing that well, I was hoping we'd get to so I could share what I remember. When you had uh, the time that you would just go ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, when you would do that and you think you're being responsible, you start to become a young adult or even teenager or, or you had your attention because the TV was on during every dinner because the Vietnam War was going on. When all this is going, all this strife, you had you know people in the streets and the civil rights protest, you had just had, you know, less than a decade before uh, Robert Kennedy uh killed and jfk and it was just there was a lot of tension even as a junior high kid or elementary and so on and your parents talk and they have their friends over and and you're not over there playing nintendo you're hiding behind the couch listening to everybody talk you know so this is um the feeling that i got was that saudi arabia was the center of the universe at this time because we needed to be fearful that we didn't have enough oil for our high standard of living, and it had to be imported. And we got to be—you want your way of life? We got to be willing to go to war. And those commie bastards that want to slow us down in any way—well, we got a bulldozer for them, you know. So it was an idea that we were like Klingons or something, you know. We got to go—we're going to go kick ass for the empire. And they counted on patriotism, and I've seen that 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 uh, that tool has been less effective as the internet has caught on and people can openly question. But then you, what's starting to happen is what you knew was going to happen is wherever they can throttle down that dissent, disincentivize it, not allow it to be incentivized, you know, YouTube and Google and Facebook and Twitter and all the crackdowns, that is just driving, they're squeezing you know, the, the, the balloon it's going to pop out. And one of these, you know, that's popped out has been James Corbett. It is amazing. Over the time that I've been doing media and talking and activist and all that, a lot of people, they'll point to different things. There's a lot of fee work. You know, Foundation for Economic Education was a really effective thing that seeded a lot of stuff in the 60s and 70s. Then, and they still do now, they're, they're even got a, they're on a new tear, you know, so they're, they're doing well. You have um, a lot of their other organizations that was influential to me, Future Freedom Foundation with Jacob Hornberger and... That, you know, there's little freedom dailies that you would read and James Bova. There's just some, and then they start to open and blossom a little bit. And then the investigative reporters that give you regular stuff like James on things that are important that you are telling them he needs to look at. I do the same thing. I try and encourage him to go on the different stuff. All I want to add to in this conversation is some of the things in his article that brought things to mind and to give you a perspective of how I feel the same psyop coming. I can feel that it's the, patriotism of, you know, there's not that much support there. They got to make something happen. And that's, you know, I always say, yep, Golden Gate Bridge, you know, St. Louis Arch, toast. I mean, they got, you know, something's got to, some iconic symbol's got to go. And I'm just, I'm worried about that. And I don't want us to under or overreact in the wrong way or something. I mean, you know, it's just just so we're informed. And that's why I'm so uh, supportive of the work that you do, James. But I want to, you know, to run it along here um when you say um well i will get to that in a minute this one right here remember this name kushner you're talking about when kushner went and was putting together before all this a 110 billion dollar saudi arms deal now i remember that when that have they were talking about and it just kind of got brushed off as just regular doing business and didn't get emphasized enough would you do that for our audience
1: please all right. So at the time, I did write an article about that arms deal that I'll direct people to, and uh, it was called What They're Not Telling You About the Saudi Arms Deal. So this $110 billion deal has been slightly overblown, and they're adding some figures in there to make it into $110 billion. But, um, <clears throat> but the long and short of this is uh, uh, there's a couple of things going on here. One is that Saudi Arabia is is or has been at least Uh, who knows if this is a change in direction with the purge, but they have been trying to buy the good graces of the United States as part of their quest for regional dominance right now, because clearly the middle East is in a state of flux and for for a decade and a half now, since the whole restructuring that's been taking place with the Afghan Iraq wars, uh, it's been an open question as as to who's going to step into the power vacuum. Um, Now, what ultimately resulted from Iraq War II there is that Iran it greatly bolstered their position, uh, that in fact, Iran has gained something of a, a, a political foothold, as it were, in Iraq and has more influence in Iraq than obviously they would have done if Saddam was still in, in power, let alone, you know, whatever else would have happened organically in the region. So um, so that has been a, a very bad thing for the House of Saud in particular, which is... Uh, against Iran. It's not so much, I think, the Saudi Arabian people that have a hatred in their heart for the Iranian people per se. Again, this is power politics of power players. And the Iranian revolution of 1979, one of the things that it portends is the idea of some sort of Islamic overthrow of the emirs and kings and monarchs of the Gulf states, including, of course, Saudi Arabia. So Um, I think the House of Saud does see the writing on the wall because Saudi Arabia, it has to be kept in mind that this is still a a tribal nation. And um, King Ibn Saud, the the founder of the modern state, he had, I think it was 45 sons, something like that. So when he dies, there's this huge question as to the succession and, you know, who's going to rule this kingdom. And there's three different at least three different power factions, three different kind of family lines and, and tribal elements within that that uh, that House of Sod, and they're all vying for control. So the way it has functioned um, more or less, with some intrigues and some blow-ups here and there, but more or less functioned, is that the powers of the state of Saudi Arabia, the, the various security forces and what have you, have been divided up between those three tribal factions. And they've, th- there's kind of been a balance of power there. What, what has just happened with this purge, this really spectacular transformative purge, purge whatever you want to call it, is... Uh, the consolidation of all of that power within MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the king, uh, the, the son of the current king, King Salman. Um, a very important move because that takes away that balance of power that had delicately balanced those three tribal factions within the House you know, of know, don't,
0: don't lose where you left off here. But as you're explaining that, thank you. I, I, I want you to continue. But um, MBS, I see that as a constant referral to him. Of course, it's his, his initials. Is that like um, I'm wondering why? Is that to distinguish him because it's easier because you have to say it so many times? Is it a brand? Is he selling Nikes? I mean, you know, <laughs> where's that coming from?
1: That's a good question. I, I, everything I read and everything I see refers it to refers to him as MBS, and I think it is a common, uh, uh, well, at least in English, obviously. Um, I don't know what. Yeah, they say no, I,
0: I'm just wondering. It's it's pushed so much. Is it yeah, because? Yeah. Everybody's just lazy
1: or is well, it a think, branding thing? Uh, personally, I do it I, I, because it distinguishes King Salman from his son, bin Salman, Mohammed bin okay,
0: Salman. OK, well, that maybe yeah, it's like, you uh, know, W. Bush, you know, yeah, or something, exactly you
1: know? right. So Bush 42 um, or whatever.
0: Yeah. OK, so I'm see the reason I, I, I bring that up is that when you consolidate power like this, you either do it under a philosophy or you do it under an in, individual and they definitely chose the individual. You know, this is an individual thing. This is not, you know, for truth, justice in the Saudi Arabian way or, you know, women get to drive forever or something. I mean, this is not a philosophical thing. This is a consolidation of uh, Game of Thrones power thing, you know, and, uh, and it looks like it. They they didn't leave a whole lot to chance. But the one thing I also want to get up to is from this Kushner deal and them doing all these arms. And it seems like Trump's at least, if not facilitating kind of, you know, we'd be buds and stuff. And there's like been this relationship or he understood he needed this relationship from like, you know, cause I'm an international man of mystery, you know, and I got businesses and we do business and art of art of business. Okay. So I'm going, all right, now I get the impression that, um, this was a, not a coup inside the house. Assad is more like a coup against interest that involved, you know, the intelligence community, you know, the banking industry, the oil oligarchs. I it just this has been a, a flip of a switch. They're going to start going to China and other competitive markets and currencies. The petrodollar gets ignored or abandoned. And Trump sees this or saw this coming or encouraging it or allowing it or just wants to like survive it or something. So that's kind of where I want to get, you know. But I'm wondering what history we need to. Find the answers out to those questions.
1: Well, what role Trump and the Trump administration and Kushner more specifically is playing in this is a, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, And one that I don't have the definitive answer to. I don't know what their angle is on this yet, other than to say, as I was saying, I think Saudi Arabia is trying to position themselves as the, the leader, the, the regional dominant power of the Middle East. So they are doing things like the the war on Yemen, which is seen as a proxy war in Iran. They're clearly ginning something up with Lebanon here with the abduction of the prime yeah,
0: minister. Go, you know, yeah, don't breeze by these for me, James, man. I mean, when you go the Yemen thing, I never really got a full beat on this Yemen thing. <laughs> and then... You know, the, 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 it comes out that they, well, of course, time. we've been always buddies with Israel in our joint effort that we don't like Iran. I mean, you know, and and then this Qatar thing, um, I I never really, all I got out of it when it was going on was this. Well, Qatar, the other Arab states on the peninsula, they, they did not like them none too much because they paid a, a ransom to some bad guys that got money, you know, so they can get one of their brothers back. But it was really a, you know, a deal or a negoc- something. You know, they just want to tarnish them in some way. And then stuff happened and I lost interest. So I'm going, but Qatar keeps coming back. You know, are they breaking with the fold or something or not getting in line or they're aligned with something else? Then you got uh, Saudi Arabia being buds with Israel as long as we all can hate on Iran and why do we hate Iran so much? And then Yemen. So start with Yemen. What the hell do we give a crap? And we got the Congress voting money to go kick the living crap out of Yemen what What is is that all about, please?
1: Oh, well, it's about supporting the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, ultimately, um, because that's ultimately what this war ends up doing is uh, supporting and stre- strengthening AQAP, who, of course, are the mortal enemies of the U.S. and the, the side of righteousness, right? Um, unless it's uh, against their interests. So what's happening in Yemen is um, complicated, and I don't have all the, the research in front of me, but it has to do with this... Houthi-led insurgency against the, the, the government that was in power in Sana'a, in the capital of Yemen, back in 2015, when they stormed Sana'a and took over um, or uh, overthrew that, that government that had been sitting there. And so Saudi Arabia is waging a war on those Houthi-led rebels, or whatever you want to call them, who are trying to take over or trying to become the, the government of Yemen, um, now that that's important because the Houthis are seen as a proxy not a proxy force, but are being being supplied and, and supported by Iran. So people are seeing this as oh, this is Saudi Arabia going after Iran, the Iranian, you know, brigade in Yemen. Um, as kind domino of a domino
0: theory war. of freaking Southeast Asia. One more time. The domino theory of Vietnam and Southeast Asia and you know, something Korea, like the communism I mean, going. The, yeah. it's just, if we don't dip it here, it'll grow into a blah 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 blah.
1: To the extent that uh, Vietnam or or North Korea was a proxy war uh, between the U.S. and Soviets, I mean, I guess you could put in those kinds of in, in that framework. No,
0: it's, what, it's how they sell it. You yeah, know, of course, got, yeah. Lord knows what the reason is. Yeah. It could be, you know, somebody, you know. Um, just the honor of whatever the heck you have no idea what happens. You know, the thing is, is that it got to sell it though. And it's always, um, if we don't nip it here, it's going to grow into, and you're won't be able to watch your big screen TV with your harem anymore. You know? So allow us to go lay waste, you know, to these mud huts because they might hurt you someday. Pinky swear. You know, I, I'm just, it always turns out being, I, I wouldn't believe anything anybody says anyway. You know, you, you want to give who benefits, you know, qui bono, man? I mean, it's, you know, who who, well, who I mean, gets yeah, what out?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, let's deconstruct their narrative because there has never been any really definitive or convincing evidence that the Houthis really are being fundamentally supported by Iran Um or that they, Iran has, you know, secret control over them or anything like that. So it is an excuse to a certain extent. Um It really does give the big question mark as to why, I mean, yeah, why does Saudi Arabia care so much about Yemen being one of the poorest nations on the planet? I mean, this is not... It's not a strategic or it, it, there's no there doesn't seem to be any geostrategic purpose. To there's this. something it's just, else
0: going on. Yeah, and, and I've been interviewing a lot of people. I'm sure you have too. Whenever Yemen comes up, we get this kind of you know we don't know. You know I've I've talked to various different people that um you know, add a little bit more to it. Just to, mainly it's just aid work and how bad it is. You know they that's the only news I can get is how bad it is. You know the cholera of how bad it is, the starvation of how bad it is. You know, and I'm going and. And they close down more ports. They prevent more aid. You only get it if you swear allegiance to, I mean, it's kind of you know, yeah. it's like watching Chronicles of Riddick, right? You right. know. So and it, it seems it seems
1: pretty open <laughs> knowledge at this point, although it's officially denied. But it seems open knowledge that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, was the architect of this Yemeni adventure for right, us. Which is I mean. what
0: I you know I, I'm seeing that you know also, and I'm I'm, I'm asking. Why? Why? When he got in charge of, you know, some portion of the army, at least to be doing this. And he went and did it. And I'm going to what purpose to consolidate or learn how to shoot, you know, bazookas or something. I mean, I, I, I don't, why, you know, and, and he's parlaying that into now I'm King. This isn't bode. Well, man, you know, this doesn't sound like a bad freaking mythological story.
1: Yes, it does. I think you're right. And, uh, uh, again the questions of his motivations in the yemen war in particular is an open question but clearly i think he has uh, he has been consolidating power um, from his position as defense minister but also in charge of various other parts of the saudi government to basically f- flex muscles show that i'm the one in charge that i'm making the decisions here and you know this is my baby so i think that has to be part of it um and well, let's move on to Syria. I want to know what his, uh, you know, role
0: in the this Assad thing and so on, too. You know, these 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 all these things start to tell a story here. You've uncovered a lot of stuff here. I'm just going, there is a pattern here somewhere. So what's his view and input and future of Assad?
1: Well, you, you see, actually, this gets even more complicated, and it gets into parts that I'm still researching myself. So I don't, again, don't have the answers for you. But I do know that... Um, Bandar Bush, we all remember bandar bush the uh the prince the Saudi prince who was so close to the bush family that he got the uh the nickname and all of this was at some point i mean there's been some intrigue going on with him for years now as to he, he was being reported as dead, but then he's suddenly alive again and he's meeting with uh Putin in moscow and and he's the head of the security services in Saudi Arabia all of a sudden and then he isn't and this year he's been arrested in Saudi Arabia. What on earth? What's going on? Um, he uh, definitely had a part in engineering what was going on in Syria at least four, three or four years ago. He was helping supply the Salafi um, jihadists who were attempting to overthrow Assad. He was arranging some of that. There are implications that he was involved in the, the, uh, the chemical attack of three, four years ago, whatever they tried to pin on Assad. So... Um, he's been floating around there, but now he's being taken out as part of this purge. Um, so w- there is another level of intrigue to that. And perhaps, perhaps MBS is trying to clean up after, you know, Syria, okay, Syria is a failure. You know, let's clean up that operation and get get moving forward. Um, that's a s- complete speculation on my part at this point. But there's, there's some intrigue going on there within. Again, this is all internal to Saudi Arabia.
0: Well, you know, this seems like... Um the targeting are the guys like this. It's all that Bush, Cheney, Halliburton, they them those from the eighties, nineties, and you know that crowd. And um and and the Clinton dynasty was perfectly willing to dovetail with that. And then here comes this Trump thing, and I with Kushner going and making deals with while Russia is selling gazillions of dollars worth of defense missile systems and China's wanting to say hello to Saudi Arabia. Oh, Aramco, your whole oil thing. I saw you reporting. They're just going to buy the whole damn thing. So I'm going, this is not the same Middle East that, you know, Cheney and Bush and Rumsfeld and all these, and you know, Wolfowitz, all these guys were
1: part of. It seems like the connections to them in Saudi Arabia are the ones being purged. Right. I, I think I, one of the ways we have to look at this is that as I'm ta- as I'm trying to paint the picture here, Saudi Arabia is trying to become this regional leader and they're trying to, okay, so we'll we'll d- wager a war on Yemen, we'll go into Syria, we'll we'll be the ones that are setting the agenda here. Um, they're trying to throw their cl- clout around at this moment, I think partially because the writing is on the wall for the House of Saud, both internally with the breakdown of the whatever balance of power was going on, but also existentially that just the economic existence of Saudi Arabia is called into question in this era where we are all being told we are going to be transitioned into the post oil era um, for what does that mean for a oil kingdom that has been founded and based on oil revenue? It means the end, unless they change everything. And that's, I mean, that's the way that, um, MBS is being sold to the, the public right now. He's the, he's the reformer. He's going to change everything. And look, he's changing this. He's changing that. He's 32 years old. He's a, you know, he's got young, fresh ideas and all of this, uh, city in the desert, $500 billion Neom. Uh, up there in the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia that they're going to carve out of the desert and all of this crazy technology they're going to use to make it. And um, so this is the way he's being sold right now. And I think that is part of the way he's trying to position Saudi Arabia is to, in a way, Fail forward gloriously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is the end of the oil era. This is the okay. We'll we'll take all of our reserves and all of that money and everything we have and we'll push it into something else and we'll be okay. The now leaders. this
0: is where I'm thinking that uh, the Western. If you have that much debt, I think what eighty percent or something of the national debt rolls over every couple of years. You know to whom? I. Uh, you know who's doing that? Well, you know it's China and it used to be and you know when I late
1: 80s, early 90s. You're talking U.S. Was, national debt.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was uh, yeah. West Germany and Japan, Netherlands, you know, that kind of thing. And that's why you had that trilateral commission that was Japan, Europe, and North America. And I'm going, you know, and I remember growing up that, that was the powerhouse economics of, uh, but the U.S. still dwarfed everybody. Well, everything's changing now. And, you know, that influence that we had with the dollar and with our allies, and uh, whatever associations they have, but you could always count on it. it kind of had the same banking system, you know. With, you know, cryptocurrencies and competing banks, and they'll you know drive vermouth like an atomizer, a little bit of gold on some currency, and that'll be enough. You know, it just, it, it's so fragile, it almost doesn't matter. And um, I, what's happening right now? I'm trying to get a beat on if this is it. You know, because it seems like it could be it. But I know I've had that feeling several times and they always pull something weird out of their butt, you know, and I have no idea. And it's usually a war. So the wars, the escalation of ouch, quit it, whether it's fictitious or not, is mostly where are we looking at Middle East stuff? Is it Sea of Japan? Is it Europe and Russia? Is it, you know, I mean, where where do you think we're most fragile something break out?
1: Um, probably the place you least expect, because that's always the place where it ends up being. And uh, Africa um, would probably be a good candidate for that at this point, because it is becoming the proxy for China-U.S. struggle. And it has been for a decade or two. It's been simmering, but it's coming to the fore a little bit more. And we're starting to see these operations. Hey, the U.S. is in Niger. What? What's going on? Why are they there? What's going on? Oh, I, you know, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Concentrate over here. So there's definitely there's there's buildup happening there and there's going to be a butting of heads at some point in the near future. Well,
0: Saudi Arabia really just represents. I mean, it's going to add its business interest or somebody can get you get. God, is it 800 billion that they seized from these guys that they arrested and seized their stuff?
1: That's the number they're reporting. Bill, 800 billion, not million, billion. Right. That's almost, hey, that's enough for to buy a city in the desert. <laughs>
0: right. So I'm just going, is that what we're trading off these dozen guys? That's <laughs> eh, crew, <them>, man. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I guess so. Oh. so. For people who don't
1: know about this, just look up NEOM. Ne- N E O M. Um, which is Neo, and then M, I guess, is the Arabic uh, like the letter for something or other. I don't remember, but anyway, so it's some kind of neologism that they're creating. And just look this up. So it's a five hundred billion dollar city that they're going to create out of nothing. This mega city, that is so it, it's going to be crazy in every possible way. And you should go and watch the actual um, the the kind of announcement uh, press gala thing they had at their little conference at the Riyadh Ritz Carlton. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, where uh, uh, King, uh, or not King, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman was Talking to the various people there, including Masayoshi Son of SoftBank here in Japan, is going to be one of the partners in this project. And <laughs> there's an interesting little part where Masayoshi Son says something to the effect of "We're going to create a second Mecca," <laughs> and the the whole crowd just kind of gasps. <laughs> and MVS is like, "Oh, he doesn't mean it like that. He doesn't mean it like that." Um, but uh, they're talking uh, about like the things Beatles, like
0: that's like the Beatles coming to America and saying they're more popular yeah. than Jesus.
1: <laughs> it doesn't translate well. <laughs> Let's yeah. put it that way. But uh, so one of, the, I mean, they're talking about these crazy ideas, like they're going to take the literal sand from the desert and create whatever silicone wafers out of these the sand, and use that to create the solar panels that are going to create the electricity to cre- power the city and all this, you know, crazy whatever technology they're talking about that's still quite theoretical at the moment. I think. Um,
0: well, but, is that a delay tactic? Is that showmanship? Is that? You I know, think just, uh, yeah, it's projects objects. like these.
1: I mean, let's put it this way: there are people involved in this that are just in it for the the money. I mean, I think at the top levels, that's not what it's about. But there are people who get in, like the Masayoshi Sons or whoever, who get into projects like these. that Just see, uh, they're going to be spending hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah, I'll put my straw into that uh, that trough. Thank you very much. So I think there's a lot of you know crazy ideas that get thrown around, and we'll but do why anything. You, you know, uh, it's just the give us the, the money. That-
0: The other thing that I I learned from, you know, reading your article and some research is that um, Saudi Arabia, since the oil prices have started to fall, they've been bleeding money. You know, this is, you know, they really were living high on the hog, man. They're gold-plated toothbrush bristles, man. I mean, you know, this is getting, you know, kind of ridiculous. So um, all of a sudden, that starts going away, and they're so overextended, I'm wondering if they're freaking just financially
1: they are um uh, saudi arabia is bleeding bleeding reserves at this point um and has been for a while now um because as people remember 2014 the oil price started plunging partly because of saudi um helping to target a lower oil price i think along with the u.s and it certainly did its uh, job in targeting the russian economy we've seen some uh destabilization and some uh, devaluing of the ruble as a result of that ultimately. And of course, Venezuela, we see what's happening in Venezuela um, enabled in part because obviously their oil revenues were decreased. But I don't, I've never understood why Saudi Arabia ultimately participated in that because of course it also affected Saudi Arabia and they are bleeding reserves and they have been for years now. And as I go through in that article, that you can see all the various ways that this is starting to affect the economy. They're starting to come out with austerity budgets and they're starting to increase cigarette taxes and, you know, float well, the idea the of other of types of taxes. East?
0: How's the rest of the Middle East doing on this? Because I know
1: that, you know, it was like um,
0: uh, UAE, uh, you know, D- Dubai, he's been generous. Kuwait, they gave uh, um, a stipend to their citizens every year. You know, we found out about that in the first Gulf War and we're like, what? <laughs> We're fighting. What? <laughs> so this is um, uh, kind of common there. What is it that they're paying for in Saudi Arabia? I mean, how much are they getting? Do you know? I mean, heck, Alaska people, uh, citizens get two thousand dollars a year for Alaska oil. You know, so I'm going, oh, well, Saudi Arabia probably gets more than that. Do we have any idea how much that is?
1: I don't know, but I think it's it's not just a question of a single payout. It's uh, it's the combination of everything, including um Including welfare. the fact that uh, they don't pay income tax and all of that, so it's all compounded, you know, in all the different programs that they get out of this. And I think so everyone they get subsidized
0: I mean, gasoline and energy and a bunch of other stuff. Exactly, and, uh, everything and subsidized, everything.
1: everything. Yeah. It's easy street for a lot of people, um, and I think everyone knows that. I mean, I think this is part of the uh, overt um, buying off of the public. Um, so you know, you guys, you you leave the house aside and these princes with their insane lifestyle. Yeah, I, you know, what are you going to do? You See, guys have See, the point that I, well.
0: I'm making, James, is like, you know, one thing that I'm feeling, everybody, you look at, um, all right, I'll tell you this. There was a documentary, it was an Oscar-winning documentary, I think it was 1980, 81, I think it was 80, and I, it was called um, Toward Liberty, um, the Carl Hess story, you know, and it was, Carl Hess was the speechwriter for Goldwater back in the 60s, and he went anarchist, and a film group out of Boston University or something, did this documentary, one short documentary, 20 minutes, you know, and boom. And uh, it was done really well, but it was anarchist, more of a libertarian style. But at the time, they didn't really get that. They didn't really understand. They thought they were, you know, uh, espousing the thoughts of this great anarchist that was more progressive. And as they got older, they realized what it was being used, a bunch of libertarians. Yeah, what he said, you know, and they didn't want it to go on YouTube. And it kind of you know, they do copyright violations and pull it down, pull it down. pull. It. But now it's up there and there's nothing they can do about it, you know. But um, uh, that documentary made it very clear to me that the um, – I forgot where I was going with that. It was a good documentary. You guys go, you should go watch it, you know. But um, I, I'm hoping that we're in a phase of understanding this from a long time, you know, what the, this battle really is about because I think it's going to reset – after the House of sod goes, it'll be the money, and whether they go or not is just it depends. I'm afraid they're, you know, well, I'm not afraid, but I mean, I think that they may be going towards other banking systems, other uh, banks, other countries, other markets, and leave the U.S. to deal with the baggage and the, the loss of the support for the petrodollar. When that happens, there's only going to be philosophy and save me and come fix it for me um, of the people, and I'm just wanting to make sure that we understand what happened and who's waiting to, to catch us because they love us so much and exploit and take advantage and restart the cycle. So uh, before we end, you know, we got 15 minutes. I'm, can you, you know, help me with that and try and get what we should look for or do or is it metals or digital currencies or who we should look, you know, to to see as the first signs that this is happening? And, I, it'll help us, James.
1: Well, as I, uh, I just did a, a podcast episode on this called the Saudi purge is a global crisis. And the basic, th- the ultimate conclusion of that is that the real, I think the real action we have to look forward to with regards to this is the China-Saudi relationship. I think that's going to be the backbone of whatever new system or paradigm emerges from this if it is allowed to emerge. And that's, I guess, the other fundamental part of this question but we've seen in recent years a growing Saudi China relationship that's been uh, cemented uh, I think over the course of the past year uh King uh, Salman went to Beijing for a state visit um where he signed 65 billion dollars in various trade deals with China and President Xi also went to uh, Mecca, uh not Mecca uh Riyadh uh I think last year and they did a bunch of trade deals then. And and I, I think President Xi even oversaw the opening of a refinery in Saudi Arabia, but a Chinese-owned refinery. So um, that is clearly the backbone of a new relationship that could be the thing that upsets the petrodollar. And since we haven't formally stated that in this uh, interview, uh, for people who don't know about that system, people should look into the history of this idea that as I was talking about that Yom Kippur war and the oil crisis that led to the creation of the petrodollar system, whereby um, Kissinger basically did some shuttle di- diplomacy and worked out this deal where Sa- the House of Saad was going to price their oil in dollars and was going to recycle that money back through the U.S. banking system in the form of treasury purchases and, oh, yeah, arms deals. OK, um,
0: now that's one thing that when they do the treasury purchases, this is where I think they have us over a barrel. But... Um, that's no threat of them doing that. Is there some kind of control that we exert in some way that they can't sell it, or it's automatically renewed, or they don't really control that deal where the part of the money goes into our system? I'm just
1: yeah. It seems yeah, like we're so question. vulnerable the, there. There's, I mean, that's an interesting part of this whole thing because one of the interesting things about the petrodollars, when you go to research it, you're going to find there aren't a lot of actual like hard research or documents that you can dig into about this because everyone's known about it. It's been talked about for 40 plus years, but it hasn't been officially acknowledged or or it's been uh, parts of it have been officially kept secret. And in fact, it was just last year that Bloomberg finally got some FOIA documents that showed this 41 year old deal this uh, debt secrecy deal that uh, that was part of this whole package that um, Saudi Arabia's reserve purchases or treasury purchases would not be reported or at least would not be reported as Saudi Arabia it was in some big basket of like miscellaneous purchases or whatever it was part of the deal the secrecy was written into it so there has been this whole big shroud that's been placed over this for a long time, and and when they unleash that uh, shroud, I think their their holdings are something like seven hundred fifty billion dollars of treasury purchases, which is again is quite quite large. It's up there, not quite uh, uh, China's one point one trillion or whatever it was, but
0: uh, yeah, you don't refi the debt. You know the people that did that don't do it. Stuff happens. That, that's just that's just the way it is. Well, it, well, Trump going and visiting them is, is just— You know, is he like negotiating this, you know, because it could happen on his watch. You could have all the deep state going to them and say, make it happen on his watch. And he doesn't want it to happen. He's going to do. See, there's something else going on and we don't know about
1: it. Yeah. Clearly, there's a lot of deliberations that go on behind the scenes that we'll never see. We can only see what what ultimately results from them. But I did a video last year. That people okay, need to watch. It's called, Why is the MSM Finally Reporting on the Petrodollar? Where I go through this and I go through the the implicit threat. Um, I mean, the, even the fact that last year they decided to unveil this, you know, 40-plus-year-old secret about the Saudi Arabia secret, quote-unquote, about this uh, Saudi Arabia debt purchases. Even that is some sort of dagger that's being held. Like, okay, we we'll start taking the cloak off. We'll start showing people what's under the kimono or the uh, the uh, the Saudi, you know, robe or whatever. Um, and uh, in that video, I went through the idea of the $750 billion that they could dump on the treasury markets and would the treasury markets be able to withhold or withstand that? And in fact, the answer may be yes, unless it was done all at once. Um, that could have an effect. But in fact, over the past uh, year or two, China has uh, decreased their Purchases uh and and uh, to the and to the extent of seven hundred eighty billion. So the the market
0: increased. Who increased? I mean, you know, I've seen a lot of. It's a good question. You know, the the yeah. Fed, yeah, the Fed buying stuff. Yeah, and the, the, the Fed. The are talking waste the and one and one to one dollar to the banks so of you got. Now it's in a reserve. So when the 08 happens again, it won't happen because now you got these reserves that we owe and we'll pay you interest on it. Yeah. If you'll kind of keep this big giant buffer money so that we don't have to bail your crap out, you know, next time again. And that'll be enough pinky swear. You know, I'm just it, it's ha- the one thing that I wanted I wanted to get back to when we did um, we'll finish on. Once I do this and we can talk about whatever you want, but I wanted to get this in. You know, when they made this shift uh, to um, MBS, as opposed to who was in secession, uh, the brother of, you know, King, what's his name to begin with, I'm going, what was the timing? What was the reasoning for that? And you opine here that when the C- the CIA blocked a United Arab Emirates and Saudi attempt to overthrow the Emir of Qatar, or Cater, K- or uh, whatever some people say, I call Qatar, or whatever. So the Emir of Qatar, so I'm going... um, Why would they want to overthrow him? I still haven't had that clearly stated what the reason was. And then why would the CIA want to block it or get involved? And if they pissed off the king and he all of a sudden puts his son in, oh yeah, well he's in now SOB here, let's rock and roll. And they go, so is it like this, um, uh, MBS is against the CIA and the old guard and the Bush Cheney Rumsfeld, all that kind of crap. And and Trump's trying to coddle up to him and be a, a liaison, a representative, setting him up. You see what I mean? There's some weird dynamic going on there based on the reasons behind the CIA and the emir of Qatar uh, attempt. You know, what, what was going on there? Who were the interested party?
1: Well, the uh, uh, the ringleader of this apparently was Mohammed bin Zayed Al-Nayan, Nahyan, is the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. And he is the, or is touted as the mentor of MBS and perhaps the string puller of what's going on in the region generally. So that's something that needs to be dug into a little bit more. But this story about the UAE and uh, Saudi attempting to overthrow the Emir of Qatar and that being blocked by the CIA, all of that is coming from uh, Pepe Escobar, who reports for the Asia Times online. And he has this source that's close to the House of Saud. I don't know who this source is, you know, there's no way to vet it. I mean, how do you know? It's just an anonymous source, so take it for what it's worth. But this is the story that they're attempting to paint, which is that, as you say, there was this attempt to overthrow the emir of Qatar. Why specifically the emir of Qatar? Why now? Why at this point? Um, Is it because Qatar is just... Vulnerable at this point, and it's kind of a power play for you know regional dominance, or is this about some greater geostrategic? Qatar now kind of aligning more with Turkey in that kind of resistance block. For for people who haven't seen, I just did a, an interview with Sharmin Narwani talking about the Middle East in general and this resistance block that's forming. That's obviously Syria and Lebanon and Iran and Iraq. Okay,
0: a, rest- a, a
1: resistance to
0: what? To just Saudi the Arabia. In general?
1: Qatar, uh, U.S., Israel, Turkey, who had been trying to go into Syria. And clearly that didn't, after six years, they haven't quite got uh, Assad out of power. So the resistance is everyone on the other side of that. Now, interestingly, Qatar and Turkey seem to be peeling off of the Saudi axis and being more not quite aligned with, but maybe more amenable to the resistance block, and that has to do with the cutter Iran sharing the south par's oil field, which is one of the largest reserves in on the untapped reserves on the planet now they're on And they're the starting to two develop different it.
0: Side, they're on the two different sides of the Persian Gulf is it like angle drilling down underneath the Persian Gulf or something there's a pool of oil
1: well, I think they they actually share the actual contiguous space of that that uh, reserve um yeah, I goes across both. Waters.
0: Oh, okay. So underneath it's like a big lake and it's yeah. on both sides of the whatever. Okay. Something
1: like that. Yeah. So they both have access to it and they're both looking at ways of developing it jointly, which is interesting. Well, and of course, what is that... in
0: the way of all this? See, it. I'm, I'm still not, it, I don't feel like somebody's wanting to squash their boot on somebody else. And it's just an excuse. Ouch. Quitted of somebody didn't do what I want to do when I wanted them to do it. And you, you diss me and didn't give me my props or something. So that they could have—is it conflict for the raise oil prices? Is it conflict for land? Is it conflict for power? Is it debt? You know, the U.S. You know, is the influence of China and Russia? Is it? You see what I mean? Yeah. It's like. But the you know, implication, I'm I
1: think, of that would be well, Qatar and Iran working together clearly. Well, that would be for Saudi. That would be horrible. Iran. I mean, they're already. Okay, too, now why would hard. it be horrible? Because, again, because of the power play in the region, Saudi Arabia wants to be the dominant, Iran is a major competitor for that regional dominance, and the other factor in all of this with the Islamic Revolution and what that represented in Iran is the potential end of the House of Saud, because if that happened in Saudi Arabia, it would be their heads on the chopping block and, you know, whoever, you know, whatever religious authority comes to power or whatever, and the House of Saud has always had that in mind, worried about that to some extent, that, you know, they're in a precarious situation that has been smoothed over with oil money that's drying up they see the writing on the wall their heads are potentially on the chopping block so um so, so the iranian threat is kind of the idea of this threat of well what if the people rise up against you and the iranians uh their their ideas the iranians want to spread that to the whole gulf they want you know they want all these monarchies oh, gone okay
0: the monarchies are oh, saying oh, oh you know it's against us all right. Well, hell, that's all you had to say, man. <laughs> oh no, crap. I get it. All right. All right. All right. So Iran represents the you know United States to France aristocracy.
1: Well, the Islamic version of that, I guess.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you know, you had you know, them damn Yanks, Americans out there declaring their independence and revolutionizing against the largest known empire in the universe at the time, save God, you know, the British empire. And they, they got some and the French kind of Helped a little bit. We went and helped. And then all of a sudden, our people won their own freedom and started lopping our heads off. And that sucked. So then they're going, well, uh, this whole concept of revolution, democracy, blah, blah, blah. And there it goes for a century or so. We got to get this thing back in the bottle. You know, well, they have these states created ever since World War One and on. And, Sheik, you're in charge of whatever. We just need somebody to sign a contract to say how you borrowed on your natural resources and that's how all our oil got underneath your sand because you got an airport for it you know and whatever and it just happens all over again and again and again so i'm uh but when you have a resistance movement and they call it this the resistance you know countries or block or something like that and you have how evil and bad and a lot of bad history in the middle east is u.s screwing around in the middle east starting one of the main areas was a democratically elected? Was it Muzadek or something in Iran? And then in was it '53? I mean, I ch- James Barrett dates TPAJX on 1953.
1: Kermit Roosevelt overthrew Mossadegh. Yep.
0: Boom. See. So the thing is, is that they know that we're the bad guys. Well, the one country that the people rose up against a corrupt Shah that I remember in my days in the late '70s. You know, when all this was going on, the hostage crisis and day. 382 or some crap like that, Ted Koppel and Nightline. Every night you go going to and then, you know, Carter in seclusion and his lay speech. You know, I mean, I lived through this. It was an emotional thing. It was got to go get some. So it's, uh, now you have the this country that embarrassed the, the West in general, certainly the United States, and it was as a, a blowback of this we're going to take all your oil and do it, and this rich guy here gets it all, and he's oppressive to you and puts you in the dungeon and rendish and kick your butt and torture, and there's nothing you can do about it, and the people rise up with a little bit of religious support and uh, you know so on that's kind of finding its own equilibrium now. But they represent this across the middle. Then you had the Arab Spring. Arab Spring goes, it was an economic thing. You know Now it's going to happen again, and they see it coming, And what I guarantee when they talk about um, Iranians influencing these different groups or whatever, man, it's just like the North Vietnamese going in there and training and, you know, having a good education class and this and why and whatever. You don't even know who on our side hell is helping. You know, it's just it's just to keep consternation going. And I can see now that we had this conversation, I finally understand why I go. Why are they so? Who gives a crap about Iran? Why are they? It's what they represent. It's that light on the hill kind of thing. Somebody can resist and overthrow the big empire or whatever. And the man can't stand that. And Afghanistan doesn't have like a national soccer team or anything. They're just tribal. They go Afghanistan country flag. What, what are you talking about? Oh, that's Kabul go over there. So they can't conquer. They're not like somebody would surrender. I mean, you know, it's like, Oh, those wusses, uh, Hatfield's over there um, on that side of the hill. They, they don't got no but man. We got to kick some butt. So this is what I'm seeing is happening. And, and, and it's just now that I finally get, it's a threat of rebellion in the spirit of the people there. That's what they're afraid of. That's why they're going out to the Houthis in Yemen. That's why they can't have Assad not being on the bank to sit and be one of their boys and inside the club. That's why they got to get Iran. That's why anybody and everything that has anything supportive by or for or to or with or, uh, you know, in partnership with Iran, which is going to be China, you know, and Russia. So, I mean, it's getting to be messy. They better just give up, let it go and peace be upon thee, come back America, you know. So I, how far off am I, man?
1: I think, yeah, I, well, that sounds like what the, the, the general picture there. And you'll notice that all the people who have been targeted and, and taken out are the— uh, usually secular, usually military-esque leaders of these uh, nations going back to um, uh, 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 N- Nasser and all of that. Yeah, the kind of guys that could be bribed. It, well, yeah, but the people <laughs> who were not... I mean, you'll notice that the, the U.S. and their, their allies have always cooperated with the Gulf monarchies and people like that because they're the easiest ones to keep in line. And so the monarchs know that relationship has worked out well for them, but they fear the idea of people revolting against them. So that is part of it. Just to add the other <laughs> layer of, of uh, conspiracy to this, because, you know, I, it's the Corbett Report, it's what I do. Um, <laughs> uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini had a secret back-channel communication with the U.S. going back to the 1960s. So uh, he was not necessarily the actual, you know, the real resistance that people might have thought he was. There was a greater game going on there as well. But at any rate, <laughs> that's that's it the way that pe- people see it. it or feel it.
0: Yeah, no, and that's really, it's all the perception reality yeah, thing. Yeah, now yeah. I can feel like we can, you know, wrap it up and you get to say whatever you want and warn and all that kind of stuff. Man, I was not going to leave this conversation. I wasn't so concerned about that. Uh, all the details and stuff change uh, all the time anyway, and you can't really tell. who's. I, I just couldn't get my mind around what the hell is with, wrong with Iran. Why are, they don't even speak Arabic? They speak Persian. You know, uh, was it, Farsi or uh, uh, yeah, whatever Farsi. the heck? Yeah. They don't speak Arabic, you know. I guess some do, but, I mean, you know, they're a whole different culture. They have a different history, a different, you know, uh, focus, a di- and more Arab. modern. yeah. Yeah, they're more modern. They're you know Western allied. They you know, want blue jeans and Elvis Presley albums. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, what the hell is going on now? I understand. It was just the the light of rebellion, a successful one against the West to free a Muslim people from the clutches of blah 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 blah. That is dangerous. I it it makes much more sense to me now. That it's all this little stuff. They just invent these excuses. It's what kind of inspirational impact it has on the people they're trying to subjugate. And if you have that, that becomes a factor. And when you got – and they get stronger with economic deals with uh, China. I remember they did – got hundreds of millions of dollars worth of oil for gold with India. And this was just the last few years. You know, man, the man don't like that. when they tried to sanction
1: Iran, they did the oil for gold – Uh, Swap as well. I mean, and that was a big part of all of that. With with Iran being delisted from SWIFT, the uh, international banking communication network, they took all their banks off SWIFT, and you know, okay, deal with that. And so they said, okay, and so they started swapping gold oil oil for gas. So they opened their own oil uh, oil for gold.
0: You know, they, they they have. I didn't I didn't know what the hell a bourse was. I go, what's a bourse? You know, it's French for purse or something. It's like a stock exchange or a commodity exchange. So they did like a commodity exchange, you know, for oil in Iran. It goes hey, oh, for business and we'd be taking euros too. So I, I'm, the U.S., the tighter your fist, the more star systems, you know, yeah. go out between. OK, okay so this is yeah.
1: this is how I want to wrap up is to, to tell people that this is exactly what is happening. The you know, the more the fist gets tightened, the more that people find ways to get out of that grasp. But that is a perfectly predictable result of this fist tightening. There's no way that the policy planners and whatever, the string pullers of they, then those do not understand that they don't, of course they understand this. And of course they know that the inevitable part of encircling China and Russia with NATO, is to drive them into each other's arms. That's what's going to happen. So they know that this is happening. They they see it happening. I think they're fostering it in the same way they fostered the rise of China as an economic power so that it now does have geopolitical clout. Again, this is all foreseen. I don't think this is all by, you know, oh, wow, we wouldn't have ever imagined that happening. So the, my real point in all of this is I think they're setting the stage for a, an engineered conflict. I think this is going to be the narrative they want to bring in. And that's uh,
0: big, big. Is it just to kind of, you know, move the hockey puck down into certain kind of course corrections? Or is this a, it's a whole new game? I mean, you know what? Well, let's take it big? the big,
1: big, big, big picture, because it is a new game that's coming very soon. And who articulated that quite well recently was Putin who said that the first country that develops artificial intelligence will be the leaders of the world, uh, the rulers of the world, or whatever he said. And he's right about that, to a certain extent. The, the, The technology is now coming, that whoever gets first dibs on the coming technology is going to rule the whole game and uh, to an extent that wouldn't have even been thinkable even in the Unitary Superpower era. So that's the real long game that's going on right now. And in fact, it may not even be that long because if the Kurzweils and others of their way get, get their way, um, it'll be, what, 12 years to the singularity? I don't know about that, but it is coming and it's coming a lot faster than people think. I think this is one of the most important issues that people aren't thinking about right now is this whole... Machine learning, artificial intelligence—you know, autonomous robot thing. Um, You know, I'm only
0: afraid of it as much as I don't get to have a say. You know, it's like, like Musk saying, "Man, it's coming. Here it comes." And if we don't get in open source of, we get to upgrade ourselves, plug and kind of, we don't have a chance. You know, because here it freaking comes. So I'm, I'm like, the only way that we can have any kind of positive impact are the people that are doing it. That they're infected with the freedom philosophy of not be a scumbag, you know, uh, take over the planet, you know, uh, switch is not engaged, <laughs> you know, or not put in or something. I, 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 I agree with you, James. This is really, really, really dangerous, and I don't think people understand the danger of turning your life or your security or anything over to something that has the ability to kill you or allow you to be killed or distract you from or or be overtaken or controlled or what. And just, I don't like that. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I sure as hell don't want somebody else's control of it. Internet of everything. If we got, you know, a, a punch card that knows who needs to have their robot kill them or something. I I, I'm, I'm, I, I vote not that. So the only way I think that we can protect ourselves is not turn over, you know, nanny and our child to an android not turn over Skynet to artificial intelligence, not turn over our car. I know we're going to do it. I know we're going to do it, but they're just going to deliver you up to the man when they need you. (laughs) You know, I want a manual override, damn it. And um, so this is, it's coming, and I'm with James. We got to be careful about artificial intelligence. I think it's coming, you know, but we got to have a philosophy and a healthy understanding of the threat it is.
1: We do. And I think you're right. Ultimately, again, if this is an ideological battle, then the the way that we win that is by spreading the ideology of the other side, the non-collectivist, non-oligarchs, the, the people who are about individual freedom and liberty. And that, if that mindset is in the minds of the people who are the minions who are creating this Skynet or whatever. Then perhaps we have a chance of uh, shunting this off in a different direction. But otherwise, it, we know where this is going. And I think that's no, I, why... I
0: see it. I see it in the uh, Bitcoin space, you know, in this digital crypto. I go to, you know, speak at these, you know, uh, different events uh, with uh, Bitcoin and such. And I can see the only freedom that we're getting is not the guys that have the venture capitalist money to hire developers to massage their idea into shoehorning blockchain into the legacy banking system and the compliance effort of the app of, you know, Uncle Sam's happy, you know. I the developers they just give me a paycheck I can code wherever you want oh you need it to do that point but you need them to understand the ones that are capable of writing this stuff that create you know Bitcoin to begin with that they understand that there is a need a desire and a market for decentralized open source you can't stop it they can't see it they don't know none day business communicate pirate communication because if you don't have that. We are going to be screwed, and it's going to be a lot faster than people think. And i thinking you know, the third letter of Captain Mark that we did for our PiratesWithoutBorders.com thing, we made it clear. We're going, the real goal of the crown is to make you incapable of dissent. You don't even want it. You don't even recognize that you should do it. You know, that's when they win, and they'll do whatever they can. But the, the power that they get is what we give them or the money that they make. And they're making that money based on eliminating competition, supporting you know uh, their buddies, creating rivals that don't exist so you let them take your freedom for security. And it's all just to control you and exploit you as cattle. You're just livestock. So what James is doing and understanding, I've gotten so much life and experience and activism that a lot of the lines weren't connecting. And one of those lines we got tonight was, what the hell was with Iran? Now I understand. It's a spark of rebellion just in in reputation. They got to be made corrupt and they got to be made ineffective and they got to be made wrong and they got to be made to freaking submit and they got to be made, got to be made. Syria kind of represents the same thing. So I'm just and I don't know what the hell North Korea is. That's just there to play some weird piece in the game. (laughs) I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll talk know. about that another time, but I think uh, for my audience that's listening to this and that doesn't listen to your show, they should, because the work you're doing in interviewing the developers and the activists and the people who are involved in this space of developing these new technologies and either arguing with them or or drawing out this liberty philosophy in those people is so important, and I'm so glad that you're there doing that and highlighting the work of people who are doing this in the right way, like Cody Wilson and others who are, yeah. you know, who are on that cutting Edge, that are doing incredible things um, with technology for liberty and that's i mean that's going to be important whether you like it or not that is exceptionally important going forward
0: and it's why i don't emphasize a lot of the stuff that you i, I enjoy having you on and, and it scares me a lot of the things that are happening and more i understand it then you uncover the secrets exposed the lies you know the fear goes away and um uh the technology that's available and what's going to happen in the future which is why they always want to con you with more prosperity and look how we're going to live like the Jetsons if you only pick me, pick me, which is what's going on in Saudi Arabia right now. They always twang on the future hopes and aspirations and imagination of people and the youth. And they'll get another 20 years out of you. And they did it with a space race. You know, they do it with, you know, uh, a bunch of other stuff. So I'm just, I'm, I'm glad we had this talk. You know, I appreciate you staying you know, are coming on early there. It's you know, kind of evening here. This is a good time of weekend for us to do this. But um, I didn't want to prepare anything. I, did. I just wanted to go over this and get your opinion. And you and I talk without commercial interruption because I, if I could understand, I really feel I got something out of it. Thank you, James. This this concept I couldn't figure out. Iran, what the hell? Now it's more clear to me. I understand. It's you know, it's iconic almost. So I I get it. And, and and for all of your listeners, I, I'm glad that you're helping, James, because th- to tap on all of you as volunteers for humanity to have this window and this opportunity for us to find out from your work, that is such an ad. And as an old activist from the 90s and so on, we knew, had faith that you would exist and come along and do exactly what you're doing. But it was in short supply back in the day. Thanks, James, for coming. On. I'll let you go, brother, and get to your family. But thanks for doing this. I feel a lot better.
1: Well, thank you again for doing what you do and for being there for the decades, even the pre-internet era, if if that can even be imagined right now. It must have been a hell of a lot more work than it is now for people like me. So I do appreciate the work that you do. Thank you.
0: Thank you. G- good night, buddy. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up
1: today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.